Amen. Tell me if you've had this experience before. I guess, I don't know, maybe you can't tell me. I guess you could write it in chat. But there's an experience I've had that I wonder if you've had before. Have you ever had the experience where someone comes to you and they confront you about something in your life? Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, you know what, I think you're doing it wrong. I think you made the wrong decision. I think you're making bad choices. Have you ever had somebody confront you in your life? If so, I bet you agree with me. It's generally not a pleasant experience. So here's the follow-up question. When people confront you, how do you tend to respond During the first service, somebody in the room literally raised their fists. Because I know that it's often true for me, and it's often true for a lot of us. When people confront us, when they challenge us, when there's conflict, we often respond with defensiveness. Our hackles get raised. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Because if you're like me, the challenge and the difficulty and the unpleasant reality of that experience often leads to some unwise choices. I mean, I'll be honest, if I look back over my life, some of the worst moments where I've made some of the worst decisions have been the moments of the greatest conflict, tension in the midst of confrontation. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to try to get better at responding when those difficult moments arise. Now, You might not remember this, it's been a few weeks, but we are jumping back into a sermon series called One. We've been studying together through the book of Acts. We took a break for Advent, where we read from the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, and we learned about the comfort and joy that God gives us with his presence here on earth. Then we did a two-part sermon series called Decisions and Destinations, where we celebrated the good things God has been doing and talked about how we can commit ourselves to making the right choices as individuals and as a church that will lead us towards the destinations to which God is leading us. But we're jumping back now into the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. If you want to go there now, we're going to read almost the whole chapter together. And here's what Acts 15 is about. It's about conflict in the church. And it's about a church who, because of the conflict, is facing a risk of division. And I don't know about you, but I kind of think that we live in a circumstance, as we look over the past months in our country, and also we live in a world where division and conflict is just common enough anyways, where this could be a really necessary topic. And here's what I hope happens. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. As we read through this story from Acts 15, you know, about some Jesus followers thousands of years ago, I want you to hold in mind the way that you normally respond when conflict and division come your way. And then I want you to consider how do we see these Jesus followers respond when conflict and division comes their way. And I'm going to make an assumption. My assumption is that maybe, just maybe, There's a bit of a gap between how we normally respond and how we're going to see the church respond. And if there's a gap, then here's what I'm going to challenge you to consider. God, I'm going to challenge you to consider praying, God, would you help me close that gap? So that when I respond to conflict and division in my life, 
I might do it a little more according to your ways. Now, a brief summary of where we've been so far in the book of Acts. First of all, we're calling the sermon series one because the book of Acts talks about the one God who establishes his one church. He gives that church one mission, and that one mission becomes the one focus of every Jesus follower's life. It becomes their focus when everything is going well, and it becomes their focus when everything is falling apart around them. And in the early parts of the book of Acts, we got a great definition of what we mean by the church. Here's how we've been saying it. According to Acts, the church is a community of people who, through repentance and baptism, live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit and devoted to Scripture, community, generosity, and prayer. And if you're like me, when you look at the challenges in the world around you, when you think about how difficult, both internally and externally, it can be to manage the pressure of conflict, sometimes it can feel like, you know what, Carl, I don't, I, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but I know it won't help me because there's no hope for how big the challenge is in my life. Right? I mean, sometimes when division is rearing its ugly head in your relationships, you lay down at the end of the day. And you close your eyes, but you're not sleeping because you're replaying those conversations in your head and just the anger is boiling in your heart. And that can feel overwhelming. But considering this definition of the church and what we've seen happen in the church past and in our church as well, let me encourage you with this. If you feel overwhelmed by the challenges of conflict or division in your life, maybe in your home, maybe in your extended family, I don't know where it is, but if you feel that discouragement, know this. You are part of an empowered and devoted community. You might not feel that every day. You might not choose to live that out every day. But you are part of a community with power, not because you or I is part of it, but because of the God who has established it. And I want that to be the encouragement that you take away after we've evaluated how we respond to conflict and division in our lives and how God can change that in us. The chapter of Acts 15 uh, has a name. It's generally referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And we're going to see how a group of leaders in Jerusalem got together and navigated the tricky waters of division in their lives and in their church so that we can learn how to do it in ours. Like I said, we're going to read almost straight through the whole chapter, and it's a big chunk, so I broke that chapter up into three parts. So here we are, part one, division in Antioch. Go ahead and open now to Acts 15 if you want to follow along. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, 
And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what we see is that church in Antioch has a group of Jesus followers. Some of those Jesus followers come from a Jewish background. So as a Jewish background Jesus follower, they have been raised living according to the law of Moses. And in our language, that would mean the hundreds of laws written down in the first five books of the Bible. But in particular, they're putting an emphasis on the importance of circumcision in that law. But there's another group of Jesus followers who are Gentiles. And Gentile just means not from a Jewish background. And those Gentiles were not raised following the law of Moses. So when the one group of Jesus followers confronted the other group of Jesus followers, here's what we hear happened. There was dispute and debate and disturbance. I mean, the temperature had risen so much, it said that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp dispute with them. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you experienced a sharp dispute someone with someone, right? That's one of those moments where if you were to walk in the room and take a look at it, you could cut your finger just on how sharp the tension in the room can feel. Pressures are high in the church in Antioch right now. And not only is there dispute, but it's clear that among the church, there is a division of opinion. And here's what I know about division. Whenever you have a group of people who are committed to accomplishing something together, division is debilitating. It will always shut down your ability to accomplish the mission that you're working on. I actually think, right, if division is debilitating, the opposite of it is unity. And as I was thinking about unity, I think unity, it's like the lower back of the church. It's like the lower back of any organization, right? You know this about your lower back. You use your lower back every minute of every day, walking upstairs, walking downstairs, picking up the dishes, and it's easy to take your lower back for granted or even forget it's there. But the moment you even just get the smallest tweak of a muscle, if one of those numerous discs gets just a little out of place, Suddenly, that little injury to your lower back hinders everything you do. Well, that's what division is. It's like you throw out your lower back and it is debilitating for everything the church is trying to accomplish together. As I thought about it, I can think of at least two ways that division is debilitating. First, it destroys our chances of success. I mean, if God has given us a mission that he's invited us to participate with him in accomplishing, if we're spending all our energy on the division, we're much less likely to successfully accomplish what God has given us to do. And then second, even if we do manage to succeed, it degrades the impact of our success. And here's how I know that. 
We talked about this before, but Jesus prayed for you and for me and for us. And Jesus prayed that his church would be one, that we would be united. So God hasn't just given us a mission, something that we're supposed to move towards. He's given us a manner in which we must accomplish that mission. So if we're carrying out God's mission while being divided, we're not doing it the way that God has intended us to do it. And so even if we do succeed, it degrades the impact of our success. And you've seen this in your own life as well. I mean, think about at work when you're on a team and one of the people on the team is just constantly sowing division amongst the work on the team. It debilitates everything you do. Think about the most critical relationships in your life. If in your marriage, if in your relationship with your kids, if in your relationship with anybody critical in your life, you're experiencing division, you know that it is completely debilitating to anything you would hope to accomplish in that place. So, what do we do when that division rears its ugly head? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I know sometimes what I want to do is I just want to walk away and see if I can just ignore it long enough that it'll go away. But I know that that never works, yet I still seem to try it again and again. So maybe I need to take a lesson from the early church. And what did they do? The text we just read said they sent a delegation to the leadership in Jerusalem. What did they do when division came? They chose to seek wise counsel. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our decision series. What's one of the best ways you can make great decisions? You can make sure you don't make the decisions alone. You can ask yourself, am I isolated in any critical decisions in my life? And we see the church in Antioch taking this excellent advice and choosing not to go alone. Instead, they seek wise counsel for their decisions. If you have conflict or division in your life, do you need to seek some outside counsel to speak into and guide you in that place? And then critically, who are the people that you could seek out to find counsel to speak into the division you're experiencing in your life? Lesson number one we can learn is wherever there's division, make sure you don't go alone. That brings us to part two. Discernment in Jerusalem. The story continues. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe it. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No! We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent 
as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The church in Antioch is experiencing division. And they make the wise choice to seek counsel. And so they go to Jerusalem. They go to the key leadership of the church in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus. Peter, one of the leaders among the disciples. And the leadership in Jerusalem engages in a purposeful process of seeking to understand God's guidance in this decision. And there's a word that the church has used to describe this type of intentional process. That word is called discernment. And if division is debilitating, it's like a prison, it's like a cage that holds you down, then choosing to purposely practice discernment, here's what we find. Discernment is liberating. I mean, think about it again. Think about the time that you experience division in your life and how that weight is holding you down everywhere you go. I mean, you can be in the middle of doing all sorts of things, yet your mind is still controlled by division. Division is not just debilitating, it's like a cage. And if that's true, the process of discernment is liberating. And here's how the church practices this discernment process together. They do three really clear things. First... They look for God's active presence. You saw it. Peter got up and he said, People, let's just remember all the ways we've already seen God at work. Peter shared about his own experience of God leading him to the Gentiles. Peter shared about some of the other things God has done in and through Gentiles. If you read the Gospels in the life of Jesus, you see Jesus doing powerful things in and through the life of Gentiles. The, Jerusalem, the leadership in Jerusalem practices discernment by first looking for God's active presence. Because here's what we know. Wherever you see God at work, go join him there, and you're pretty much always guaranteed to be moving closer to the will of God. Second thing they do is they consult the teaching of Scripture. James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and says, I just heard everything Peter said. I heard all the things that we've seen God doing at work. And you know what? The Bible tells us that that's what we should expect to see God doing. 
In the book of Proverbs long ago, in the Psalms, in the prophets, we see God saying that he will bring Gentiles to himself. So sure enough, where we see God at work, Scripture confirms that's exactly what God has been telling us to look for all along. And then third, they engage in significant discussion and prayer. The opening of this part that we just read said, after much discussion. And then we're going to read another line in the last section where the church leadership is summarizing their conclusions. And they have this great little phrase. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Here's what I take of that fantastic little line. I've asked you a number of times in the past months, do you know the sound of God's voice? And maybe we need to learn how to be quiet and practice stillness so that we can quiet the words of our own heart and mind and listen instead for the voice of God. But with this little line, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us, what this little line suggests to me is that sometimes the voice of God is heard in the voices of God's church in discussion together. So where is it that you need to practice discernment in your life. If you're in the midst of conflict and division that's taking over your attitudes and taking over your thoughts, then try this. Pause and ask yourself, where do I see God's active presence at work in this place? And then ask yourself, what do I know from Scripture that confirms or clarifies what I see God doing. And then ask yourself, who do I need to engage in discussion and prayer with so that I can make sure my choices going forward are not what I desire, but what God desires for me? Here's what I think, and here's what I experience when I think about what it's like to live in the midst of division. In division, we can look at each other in anger, or we can look away from each other in apathy. I mean, think about that moment. I remember one time where I was sitting across the table from a member of a team I was leading, not anybody at this church, this was in a previous organization, a team I was leading, and one of the team members came to me and said, Carl, you're not a good leader. I'm a better leader, and I should be the leader instead of you for this team. And if I'm honest... I would have loved to do two things. I would have loved to shout and say, how dare you be so insulting? Or I would have loved to just walk away and say, I'm going to deal with this later. But if instead of letting division rear its ugly head, if instead we practice discernment, we can choose a third option. We don't have to be stuck with looking at each other in anger or looking away from each other in apathy. In discernment, we can look together towards God in expectation and anticipation. Because that's the thing about discernment. If you've got two parties in conflict with one another and they're just looking at each other, we know there's a good chance they're going to butt heads. But if instead they stand side by side and together look towards God, in that moment we can discover the truth that discernment is liberating. Are you experiencing the chains, the burden, the captivity of division in your life? If so, like we said, seek wise counsel. But second, know this. Discernment 
frees us from bondage to division. That brings us to part three of Acts 15. Making peace. The story continues. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they, were, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Now, a couple things to notice. <clears throat> we started with a sharp dispute. The church in Antioch sought wise counsel, and the leadership of Jerusalem intentionally practiced discernment. And now we see the result of their discernment process. But it can be a little of a bit of a head-scratcher for you and I because they list four things. Now, those four things, we could spend a long time digging into what exactly they mean. But I want to just make some general observations. First of all, the result of the discernment process was a clear communication. They clearly decided and communicated clearly to the church in Antioch. Second of all, whatever we make of these four things, it was obviously some sort of a compromise. If the beginning was some people who said, all Jesus followers need to follow all the law of Moses, 600 plus laws. Well, they didn't decide to do that. But if the other option was to say the law of Moses is completely irrelevant, they also didn't decide to do that. So they responded with clarity and some form of compromise for the sake of the unity of the church. And that is a powerful message for us to consider today because this is a significant decision that they were making. I mean, the law of Moses is something that Jesus himself quoted on a regular basis. Yet they still felt that the right thing to do for the unity of the church was to clearly communicate 
some sort of a compromise in their decision. And then they followed up with one last practice. See, whatever this compromise meant, the text said that this decision was encouraging to the church in Antioch. And not only was it encouraging, all the people that came from Jerusalem spent more time encouraging the church in Antioch. And so here's the last thing we learn as we're trying to figure out how to, you know, choose and act in the midst of division in our own lives. We know we should seek wise counsel. We know we should practice discernment. And then third, we should practice encouragement. And that's because encouragement is powerful and motivating. Now, as I wrote that down, and as I kind of was spending some time thinking about the scriptures, I realized that sometimes when I think about encouragement, I think of it, if I'm honest, a little bit like a, like a throwaway line, like, oh, make sure to be encouraging. I think if I'm honest, sometimes I doubt just how powerful encouragement can be. So I decided to dig in, and it turns out there's a ton of research out there that demonstrates just how powerful encouragement can be. There was a study out of Cambridge that followed 4,300 children, many of whom were from families that had never been to college, and it followed them over their whole educational life, trying to answer the question, what does it, get, what does it take to help a student whose family has never been to college, whom research shows makes it a lot less likely that that ch- child will go to college, what does it take to help these students eventually make it into college education? And one of the things that stood out was if a student had even just one teacher who with any consistency encouraged them. And they found that a single teacher consistently encouraging a student can make it 20% more likely that student will make it to college. A 20% increase. I mean, if you're a baseball player and you go from batting 300 to 500, you just went from being mediocre to being one of the best in the world. 20% is huge. And that's just from one teacher choosing to speak words of encouragement to a student. Encouragement is powerful and motivating. If division distracts us from the mission, encouragement moves us forward in the mission. There was another uh, author I wrote, a psychologist, uh, who did some research on encouragement but shared a really powerful personal experience. See, the data bears out that encouragement is powerful, but your experience proves that encouragement is powerful also. She was talking about learning how to surf and how discouraged she got because it was really hard. But in the midst of her failure after failure after failure, she tried to put into words just how meaningful it was that her surf instructor chose to encourage her. This is what she said. All that I had in my glass were a few drops of accomplishment. But my instructor chose to focus on the sweetness of those drops, not how comically small they were or how much of the glass remained empty. And you know this as well, because you know that when you're feeling low, when you've taken one too many punches in life, you know that a single word of encouragement can be one of the sweetest things you've ever heard. Encouragement is powerful and motivating. Scripture tells us the same thing. The book of Proverbs says, Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word 
cheers it up. And if all of this hasn't convinced you of the power of encouragement, I dare you not to be convinced by this. Look at those pandas. Doesn't that just make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside? How great the one panda is holding the other panda up. Here's what we see in the church in Antioch. Encouragement was a powerful tool for the church in Antioch to move from division to peace. I mean, if we circle back around and we consider the impact of the story, the story started with a community facing sharp dispute. And one of the very last words was that the church in Antioch sent the people back to Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. We just read a story about a community that went from division to peace. And how did they do it? They did it by seeking wise counsel. They did it by practicing discernment. And they did it by practicing encouragement. Those are the tools that they used. And let me remind you of what it means to be part of the church. Being part of the church means you are part of an empowered community. And when you are part of an empowered community, you have powerful tools. Not because you're the one who has the tools or because I'm the one who has the tools, but because these are the tools that God has given to us to use. So that brings us, as always, to your move and my move. Here's what I want you to do. Think to yourself, where are you experiencing this kind of division in your life? I know you don't like it when people call this to mind. Sometimes it makes your blood boil, even just remembering what that circumstance is, but I want you to call it to mind. Now, I want you to consider the things that you have done in response to that circumstance. I want you to consider the way you know you tend to respond when the temperature in this brokenness rises. And now I want you to consider what we just learned from the church in Antioch and ask yourself this question. In that place of division, what are you doing to make peace? Because when you choose to work to create peace using the tools God has given you, then you know it's not about you having all of the right answers, but it's about God being able to work in and through you. I know that I so often get completely focused just on the division and the difficulty and the complexity in front of us. I know I can get overwhelmed that I can just put all of my energy into reliving the challenge that I face. So let me ask a second question. Where are you emphasizing the frailty of the world over the power of God. See, sometimes the problem is that maybe we know what God's calling us to do, but we get so focused on the brokenness that we forget about God's power that can work through us. It's interesting. This story in Acts doesn't say that the church went on to never have conflict again. As a matter of fact, we know that conflict remained in many different ways. However, it does show that they continued forward together on mission, and they had a peace that was bigger than whatever other conflicts still did come back up time and time again. That's the power of God, to be something in our lives bigger 
than any brokenness we face. So here's what I want to close with. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And I want you to take serious this last question. I want you to answer it in some way. I want you to write it down. If you have a to-do list somewhere, if you have a task manager app, I want you to put it in your phone. Send yourself a text message. Write yourself an email. Write it on a paper and stick it to your bathroom mirror. You just heard evidence of tools that God uses to bring people from division to peace. So I want you to answer this question. What specific action can you take this week to create peace where there is currently division? And as you're thinking about your answer to that question, would you pray with me so that God might lead us where he would? God, again, we acknowledge we live in a broken world and that brokenness is such a burden It's a burden too big for us to carry. And we acknowledge too often the weight of division feels overwhelming. Too often we lose hope. Too often we give up hope and we think there's nothing we can be done. But God, we believe that the tools you have given us, seeking wise counsel, practicing discernment, practicing encouragement, we believe that those tools are powerful. So God, show us this week in our lives, specific ways that we can live the way you've called us to live so that we can create the peace that you have called us to create in our own hearts, in our family lives, in our church community. Lord, may we be people committed to following you in making peace. Amen.